Good morning. It is good to be here with you. I just want to say, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I came here this morning and there's always a hundred things, right? And that's on a good day. There's always a hundred things going on. And I came here this morning with my, with my brain in some other part of the world and there was people that were running the coffee and there's people with the lanyards around their neck and they're, they're setting up communion. And my goodness, the, the band and the prayer team for afterwards, there's just so, I just am overcome with gratitude for this room and I'm really thankful that you guys are here. And I really mean that. I just walked in here this morning and it just really struck me, like what a gift this is. I'm glad you guys are here. It's good to see you. And those of you who show up and give of your time and of your talents to make this place function, thank you very much. And as good as that is, and as thankful as I am for it, the main key, the center of all of this, is the person of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're gonna, that, that is who we're going to get to now. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to the book of John, uh, chapter 7. And we're going to take a look at a, at a pretty good chunk of scripture this morning. I'm going to try to get through it uh, as time efficient as I can, but it is going to be a minute, so get comfortable. So if you have a Bible, John chapter 7, I'm going to read from verse 32 to the end of the chapter, verse 52. So follow along with me, if you will. John 7, 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and take a drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. And now he said this of the Spirit, whom those who would believe in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so there was a division among the people over him. And some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And the officers then came again to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers said, no man ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And then Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's just have a quick, a quick word of prayer. Jesus, we are here to meet you. We are here to learn what it is that your word has to say. And it is a great mystery, but it is true that you, you use the human agency on earth to do your work. And it is moments like this where I feel so insignificant and unworthy to be here. So Lord, shut my mouth that we may only hear what it is that you have to say. Through your spirit, Lord, may you comfort 
hearts that need comforted and to encourage hearts that need encouragement, to convict hearts that need conviction, and to convert. Lord, if that is your will this morning, we pray for it. We pray for it in faith. We pray for it in trust. Meet us here, Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I heard a pastor who is just getting the introduction of John through to his, to his, his congregation. And something that he said that I thought was interesting was the first 18 verses take a long time to get through. That's what's known as the prologue. And the prologue is just, it's all deep water. Every word of the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John is just deep water, and it does take a long time to get through it. I think it took, I think when, when Redbird started, I think we spent four or six weeks just getting through the first 18 verses. But then what, the, what this pastor said is, he said after that, John becomes pretty redundant and we can get through it more quickly. And you know, that went in one ear and out the other. I didn't really give it much thought. And the, the longer and longer that I've been going through the book of John, I understand what that pastor was saying. I don't even necessarily disagree with him. John is very much repetitive, it's true. But when you stop and you read slowly, even, even in the situations that it sounds like, okay, we've, we've done this before, we've been here before, Jesus says something, some people get mad, he corrects them, they stay mad, and it's the next chapter. It happens a lot, it happens a lot. But if you just stop and you dig underneath the surface, there's so much here that is, a, that is applicable for our, our day, right here, right now, 2021, Portland, Oregon. And so I'm gonna take the time to just go through this slow. Because there's so much here, and I don't want to miss any of it. And I'm, I'm, one, of those, I'm one of those preachers that likes to, to preach to the head and preach to the heart. And all of that is, is here in these 20 verses. So our passage for today starts off exactly the way that we need it to. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So muttering what things? So just for information's sake, here we are, here's our context. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He came up in the beginning of chapter seven to the Feast of Tabernacles, which was many things. It was one of the three uh, feasts that men were required to attend in Jerusalem, according to Deuteronomy chapter 16. It was a feast that was a, a feast of thanks. It was held around the time of the fall, our, our September, October uh, time frame on our calendar. And it was, in part, it was a, a, a feast of gratitude. It was after the fall harvest. This was an agrarian culture. These people were farmers, and they would go and they would glean their crops, and they would store it away. They would pack their barns and pack their pantries. And then part of this feast was a thanks to God for having supplied their needs. But it was also a feast of of commemoration, remembering whenever Jesus, whenever the Lord had taken care of the people in their sojourning in the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt. For those decades that they were wandering, the Lord took care of them there. As, as havoc and as messy as it was, the Lord did take care of them, and so part of this feast was remembering how the Lord had taken care of their ancestors. And so this is, this is the feast, this is the setting. It's a time of celebration. Uh, Josephus and other historians note that it was the most festive of all the feasts. It was the most celebratory. It was, it was the most riotous. People were having a really good time. They were celebrating. They had, they had food for the next year and all that. And Jesus goes up and he begins to teach. And immediately there's division about him. There's some people that are like, isn't this the dude that people want to have killed? But here he is speaking openly. And some people said he is the Christ. And some people said there's no, there's no way. He didn't go to any of our schools or any of our institutions. There's no way that he would know enough. How does he even know what he seems to know? And they were, they were baffled by him. But there were some people that were saying, this, 
This is the Christ. Like, do we really think that when the Christ shows up, he's going to do more miracles than this guy? Get real. And so these are the things that people are muttering. It starts off already with a division about who Jesus is. People are already ambivalent. They're unsure or they downright don't like him or they're 100% for him. And so there's no consensus on the person of Jesus in this setting. And these are the things that the Pharisees hear the crowd muttering. And they send the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And he says, I'll be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The animosity for Jesus has been building throughout the entire book up until this point. And it really, it really got red hot in chapter 5 when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda and told him, take up your, your mat and walk. And it just so happened to be the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are like, never mind the miracle, bro. You can't be carrying your mat around here. That's what our law says. And the guy says, hey, I, the guy that healed me, I'm just doing what he told me. You, you know, I've been, I've been crippled for 38 years, and he healed me in an instant with a word. I'm going to listen to that guy. And so they get mad at Jesus. And Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, my father has been working until now, and I am working. Which two things, that was, that was making himself equal with God. He wasn't saying God is my father in the same sense that we are. They, and that Pharisees knew that. And then also what he's saying is if I'm, if I'm equal with God, it means that if I'm breaking your Sabbath, the Father is breaking your Sabbath as well. You need to let go of this, this restrictive Sabbath thing. Is that really loud? Does that help? Let's give it another five minutes and see what happens. Sorry about that. That was annoying me. Lord knows what it was doing to you. So people are ambivalent about Jesus. They're coming at him. The animosity is growing hotter and hotter. The, the, the Pharisees in chapter 5, it says in verse 18 that they sought all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was claiming that God was his father, thus making himself equal with God, which is exactly what we believe. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so these people were seeking to kill him. And here in this chapter, that animosity has moved from being a grudge in their heart and animosity in their mind, and it's actually beginning to grow legs. And a warrant is sent out, and officers are dispatched to arrest Jesus. And he's not perturbed. He's not bothered by it one bit. I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me in where I am you cannot come. Jesus knows that he's on a divine timetable. He does everything that pleases the Father and he knows that nothing is going to happen outside of the Father's will. So these guys can get mad and tear their clothes and beat their chest and they can come with their arrest warrants and Jesus knows what's gonna happen. He ain't tripping. He's confident. He knows exactly. He is secure in the plan that his Father has even though he knows that eventually an arrest is going to prove successful and he will be led to the cross. And he's saying something here that I think has a, a duality of meaning. On one sense, he's, he's saying that where, where I'm going to go, you cannot come. You'll seek me, and you will not find me. And in one sense, we know that that's true just physically, that Jesus is going to be led to the cross. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to raise from the dead three days later because he is God in the flesh. And then he's going to eventually ascend back to where he came from in heaven. And we can't go with him. We can't follow him on that trip, that's true. But I think that there's something on more of a spiritual plane that we have to be paying attention to here. It is true that God's grace is new every morning. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. He, his invitation is universal. Whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whomsoever, whomsoever, whomsoever. That's always the promise, whomsoever. Anyone comes to me, anyone. 
For as much as we live sinning, he lives even more to forgive. His grace is new every morning. It's unbelievable, his grace. As we're going to see as we continue in this story. But friends, there is a time limit. And I was reading, as I was reading this, I was convicted about this because I think that, that we can play loose with salvation. We can play loose with our eternity because we think, ah, chill, bro, it's cool. And my mantra growing up, like I actually said this growing up, much to my mother's chagrin, I used to say things like this. Like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to sow my wild oats. I'm going to go get cray cray. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to do the... I'm gonna do the gallon challenge and I'm gonna drink 24 beers in 24 minutes and I'm gonna see what that leads to and I'm gonna travel around the world and chase girls and look for affirmation from men and I don't really care about God, I don't really care about sin, I don't really care about salvation or heaven or hell. Man, I'm 22, whatever, bro. And whenever I get old, whatever that is, then, then, I'll, then I'll start thinking seriously about salvation. I'll start getting real about the Lord. I'll start really considering the fact that I am mortal and could die at any moment, but not until I'm at a ripe old age, which I never really defined, but when I'm, when I'm old. We do this. And friends, we shouldn't. Don't do this. You never know. Those of you who have been around for the last few months know that I, uh, I've, been, I've just been going through a month of death. One of, my, one of my best friends died in his sleep, 36 years old, went to bed, never woke up. No idea it was coming. You, you never know. And there, there is a time limit here. And it's our, it's our life. You, you have a time limit. If you die or if the Lord comes back, that's... That's it. And we, we have this attitude like, well, it's going to just kind of be whenever and I can take my time. And, then, and you never know. And Jesus actually preaches against this specifically. In Luke t- chapter 12, listen to these words. Jesus says this. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, ah, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. <laughs> and there I will store my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's the American dream. And the American dream is not necessarily bad or evil. It's good to have nice things. But whenever we put that as our sustenance, as the thing that our life actually is resting on, but God said to him, you fool, This night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, now whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I've had multiple people actually ask me before. They've said, is there there really, do you think that there's a chance after life on earth? Back? How's that? Is that better? Word? Okay, that's okay. Awkward things happen. I'm not bothered by that. Right on. So I've been asked by people. That is better. Thank you very much. I've been asked by people, do you think that there's a chance? Do you, do you think that, that this life is the only opportunity that we have to come to Jesus in faith and be saved? Or is there, do, you, do you think that there's a chance after we die? Maybe a little chance. And I think that some people have asked that legitimately curious. Like, where does it actually say in Scripture that, this is the only time and opportunity that you have. But I think that some people uh, with more ulterior motives are trying to get around this. I think that we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. I think that we're trying to deny Jesus all the way to the grave and then post-death go, okay, but 
I, you know, I've lived a godless life without you. I haven't really cared about you, but I do, but I do want to go to heaven. So can I get my passport stamped now? And the Bible teaches against that. It does. And I remember the first time somebody asked me that, I didn't actually have a verse. And I was like, shoot, I, I'll find one. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 9. It is appointed once for a person to die and then face the judgment. There it is. It's appointed once for you to die. Friends, I think that we were comfortable in this culture. We're comfortable in America. Most of us, I think that we have indoor plumbing and running water and, and we have food or we have access to food. Like compared to most other places in the world, we're doing pretty well. And I think that that's great and I love it and I'm thankful to God for it. And I'm not knocking those things. The danger though is that we can be complacent and we can think that we're going to live forever. It's never going to happen to us. And it never feels like it's going to until it does. And when it does, it's awful. So friends, just today is the day of salvation. If you're here and you're cocky or if you're on the fence or if you're curious or if you're looking, then I pray that the Spirit would speak to you in a way that I cannot. So where he is going, you cannot come. You will seek me and you will not find me. So the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to dispersion, dispersion among the Jews, or among the Greeks, excuse me, and to teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you'll seek me and you'll not find me? The dispersion, or maybe you've heard the word diaspora, that just simply means people from outside the neighborhood. It's Jews that did not live immediately in the area of Israel, the area of Palestine. They maybe even were, were Greek-speaking Jews that lived outside the area and that's all they mean. Is he going to go out there? If, he's, if, if, if it's not working for him here, is he going to leave and go, go preach to those people? And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, friends, we have to deep dive here. So come with me. I promise I'm going somewhere. Come with me. The last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. So part of the ceremony... That, was, that, was, that this feast revolved around was that every day for the seven days of the ceremony, the people would take these branches, and they got this from out of, out of Leviticus chapter 23. They would take these branches, and they would come to the temple, branches from all different sorts of trees, and they would lay these branches over the altar of burnt offering. And then the high priest would take a golden chalice or a golden bucket, and he would go to the pool of Siloam, and he would, he would draw water, and then bring the water to the altar, and he would pour the water over the altar. And this was in memory. It was commemoration of Exodus chapter 27, where the Lord miraculously brought water out of the rock for the people that were in that dry, arid environment and needed a drink to save their lives and to quench their thirst. And so this ceremony, the, the branches and the pouring of the water, is remembering that, remembering the Lord's goodness, remembering his providence, remembering that he cares for us, that he cares for our bodies and he provides for us what it is that we need and even will do so miraculously. And they were remembering this. And on the last day, the great day, there was a little bit of a switch. And before they would, they would bring the branches and the, the high priest would get the water, but before he poured the water, the people would march around the altar seven times to, to commemorate the marching around Jericho seven times, which, which, which marked the end of their wilderness wanderings. And as the high priest poured the water over the altar, the people would sing Isaiah chapter 12, 
verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they would recite Psalms 113 through 118, which is called the Hillel. So it's this climatic moment. This is important. It's this like climatic moment at the end of the festival. On the great day, there's this ceremony. It's, it's pointing to the water. It's pointing to the water. It's remembering the water, remembering God's goodness, remembering that God quenches thirst. And it's at that moment that Jesus cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This was premeditated, partner. He did this on purpose. This is pretty smart. It's all about the water. And now Jesus puts himself in as the ultimate refreshing drink, the ultimate water. The rocket horb was pointing, was pointing to Jesus. That was a promise of who Jesus is. He is the ultimate refreshment. He is ultimately satisfying. He is, he is ultimately the person that our hearts are parched for, are thirsty for. He says, I am that water. If anyone thirsts, come, let them come to me and drink. Notice there's that word anyone. His, his invitation is universal. If anyone comes, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. If anyone is thirsty. Now remember where we are in the context. We're at a festival. We're at a party. We're at a feast where people want Jesus dead. People want to have him arrested. People mean him great harm. And he's looking at them in the crowd and he's saying, you. You who, you who mean me harm, you who want me dead, you who don't like me, are you thirsty? You're invited to come take a drink. Are you thirsty? Anyone. His, his, his offer is always universal. For God so loved the world that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish and have everlasting life. Six, chapter 635, whoever comes to me will not hunger. Chapter 637, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. On and on and on and on. Whosoever, are you thirsty? Are you ambivalent about Jesus? Do you not like Jesus? Are you angry at Jesus? Do you not really understand Jesus? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. You are invited. You are not excluded because you've got, you've got beef or you've got bad emotions towards the Lord. He'll take that. But are you thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. Verse 37. Verse 38. We're told what it is to drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. Matthew 11:28 says, Jesus says, come to me all. There it is again. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. To thirst is to be weary and heavy laden. And to drink is to believe. And this is... This is just the truth of this is just the truth of the matter. We're all we're all thirsty for something. We're all heavy laden with something. But this this thirst, this heavy ladenness, this burden is the only requirement. Notice that anyone who's thirst, anyone who's thirsty, come to me. This is the only thing that you need is need itself. One theologian said it like this. I really like it. He says, "All one need be is needy." I like that. All one need be is needy. All you need is need, not merit, not success, not power, not prowess, not influence, not standing, not a good reputation, not money, not power, just need. And we need things. This, we have this, this thirst in us. We have our, our, our corporeal needs, our, our physical needs tell us, our, our, our bodies tell us, just our gut instinct tells us that we need, we need fame or something like it. We need sex. We need, we need to be validated by a partner. We need to be validated by those of, uh, that are in the professional world with us at our jobs. 
We need to be successful. We need to be accepted. We need to be smart. And if we get these things, then our souls, we, we won't just be happy. Like we won't just be chill. Our souls will actually somehow be satisfied. We believe that. And we strive and we strain and we're stressed and we hurt and we fight and we manipulate and we lie to get ahead in the corporate world or to impress that girl or to impress that guy. We're stressed about it because we need it. And then when we get it, oh, then now I got to keep it. Now I got to beat all you off with a stick to make sure that you don't get my cookie jar. I got I got I got to live with the how do I how do I maintain this? How do I keep it? How there's there's a new generation coming up and they're going to oust me. They're going to I went through years of apprenticeship at at a, at a at a union shop where guys would not teach me anything because they did not want me to take their job. And some of them were honest enough to tell me that. Guys that were in their 50s and 60s and I was in my 20s and they would just they would make me just go get my screwdriver, go get my go get my lunch bucket or whatever. They wouldn't teach me anything because they didn't want me to know. They didn't want to lose their position to me. This is the stress that it can cause. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Nothing on this earth is going to satisfy your soul. Nothing. And Jesus is saying it's me. It's me. And all you need is need. You don't need to climb the ladder. You don't need to beat anybody with a stick. You just need need. You need to acknowledge this. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This thirst is met with drinking, and drinking is believing. And we see, this, we see these metaphors that Jesus uses. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. He offers the water to the woman at the well. He offers food to those who are hungry in chapter 6. He says, eat my blood and drink my flesh. He says, be born again. He says, come to me and drink. And, and he doesn't mean to physically, literally eat his body or to literally drink his blood. As some people have, have, have said, that's what Christians do. They, do they, like, they eat people in those buildings. We don't eat Jesus' body. We don't eat anybody's body. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, but what Jesus does mean can be equally as repulsive to people because what he is saying is identify with my flesh. Identify with my shed blood. Look at Jesus on the cross and say, that's, that's what I need. I am a sinner who deserves to be punished. Are we willing to say that? Jesus takes the punishment. We see it on the cross. I need righteousness that I do not have and that I cannot obtain. Jesus gives us his righteousness. His, his dying body and his shed blood on the cross, his dead body on the cross. We look at that and we say, I, I, that, that's for me. That's my fault and that's for me. He died for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And it is repulsive to many, many people to look at Jesus' body on the cross and say, I need that. I, need, I don't need help, I need to be saved. I need to be saved. And Jesus takes that pain. He, he pays the price. The punishment falls on him. And we get the righteousness that he earned. Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now he said this about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the last deep dive of the morning and then we'll cruise through the rest. But I got to, for an arrow to go forward, it's got to go back. So we're talking about the spirit being on people. Jesus is saying that this is, he said this about the spirit. 
who the people that were to believe in him would receive, but hadn't received yet. The spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So present day, present day, in the, in the, in the feast, in the temple, at the festival where Jesus is teaching, he's saying in the future. He's speaking future tense. But he's also referring to past tense. And so to, to find out where we're going, we need to know where we are. So we know which direction to head. And so a good place to begin is in Numbers chapter 11. Check this out. This is actually really cool. In Numbers chapter 11, Moses is ticked. He's done. He's burnt out. He's been out of shape. He's had it with these Israelites and all of their whining and all their complaining and all their belly aching. And he, they, they, want, they, want, they, they want out of slavery and they get out of slavery. And then they want manna and then they want quail. And why couldn't we just go back to Egypt? You brought us out here to die. Remember, I mean, we were being beaten to death with whips, but we had onions and leeks and garlics, and now you've brought us out here, and we have this manna to eat. What is this? Dribble. And Moses has had it. He actually says, kill me. He looks up at God, and he says, just kill me. Every parent in the room is like, ah. I'm just kidding. 11, chapter 11, verse 14, Moses says, I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, just kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, kill me. <laughs> that I may not see my wretchedness. So the Lord comes to Moses and he says, okay. This is a heavy, this is a heavy burden. Here's what we're going to do. Elect 70 dudes. And I'll take some of the spirit that's on you and I'll put it on them. And those 70 men will help you govern the people. And so there's 70 men that are registered. And 68 of them make it to uh, a tent outside the camp where the, the father comes down and he takes some of the spirit that's on Moses. And he puts it on the rest of the people and it says that the people, the men began to prophesy. But two of the dudes did not make it to the tent. They were still in the camp with everybody else. And they began to prophesy, and it freaks people out. And we pick that up here in verse 26. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran, and he told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. And Moses said to them, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Listen, Joshua, buddy, don't, don't worry about me. I, I, I want to get worked out of a job. I want the spirit, would that, would that all people were prophets. We want the spirit to be on all people. This declaration that Moses made in Numbers chapter 11 the, the minor prophet Joel picks up and it becomes a prophecy on his lips. And he says, he says this, Joel chapter 2 verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I, should pour out my flesh, that I shall pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Pour out the spirit on all flesh. And we know that after Jesus' death... His burial and his resurrection in Acts chapter 2, the spirit came down on the 120 and then they went out and the spirit went with them. And the spirit is present before Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. But after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, does the spirit become a personalized internal gift who resides in us? The person of the spirit of God comes to live in our hearts. 
That is new. Jesus said in John 14, 17, the spirit is with you and the spirit will be in you. John 16, verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The spirit of the risen Christ could not come to dwell with us until Christ had been risen. The person of the spirit, God the spirit, was present in the world. But post-resurrection, post-ascension, the spirit becomes a personalized gift. He comes to live in us. Colossians says, says the hope, says Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians chapter 2, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in heaven, but Christ resides in our, in our bodies, in our spirits, renewing our minds, making us alive to, to the things of God, to sin, to righteousness, to judgment. We're born again. The spirit of God comes to live inside of us, and so Jesus is, is living inside of us through his spirit. And this could not happen until... Christ had been risen. The spirit was present, but not a personalized gift. The spirit moved from the wilderness tabernacle to the temple, to being on the person of Jesus, to being in us. The spirit would come to those who would believe in him, for as yet the spirit had not yet been given, because Christ had not yet been glorified. Okay, so when they heard these words, some people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. And some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid, no one laid hands on him. So, we have, so in those four verses, from verse 40 to 44, we have four opinions about who Jesus is. Some people say he is the Christ. Some people say he is the prophet. Some people say there's no way that he's the Christ. And other people say he needs to be arrested. This is, this is pretty unbelievable. And this is important to note, verse 40, when the, people heard these, when the people heard these words, they said, this really is the prophet. That word really is the Greek word alethos. It means genuinely, surely, or most certainly. And this, this, points, to a, this points to a legitimate faith in who Jesus is. And we're going we're gonna to pick that up again in verse 43. But there's this legitimate faith. The people are, people are seeing him and they're saying, yeah, this really is the prophet. The prophet from Deuteronomy 18, the one that will come that's greater than Moses who has the words of God in his very mouth. There's people looking at Jesus and they're really believing this is him. And then other people are saying, there's no way. There's no way. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't the Christ come from the offspring of David and come from Bethlehem? Now, so people believe that Jesus had come from Nazareth and Galilee. And they gave, him a, they gave him a hard time for that because Galilee was sort of, you know, Nazareth especially was sort of, sorry if these words offend you, but this like podunk, uneducated, backwoods, you know, you know the, the, kind, of, the kind of people that aren't going to college. Like me. <laughs> they thought that he came from there. And so they're like, there's no way, bro. There's no way that this is the guy because the, the, the Christ is supposed to come from from, from Bethlehem. Now the thing is, is that Jesus did come from Bethlehem. Now this is fascinating. Notice this. I love this. I love this. This is the brilliance of our Lord and the brilliance of the Bible. This is so fantastic. So verse 25 through 27, Jesus is teaching. People are kind of confused about him. And there's a group of people that come and they're like, well, this is the dude that everybody wants to have killed. And yet he's speaking openly in public and nobody's apprehending him. Do you think, is it, is it possible that maybe the authorities themselves think that this is the Christ? But verse 27 
we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Verse 42, doesn't the Bible say that the Christ comes from David and comes from Bethlehem? So in verse 27, we got a group of people that are like, I don't know. You tell me. But in verse 42, they not only say that he comes from the line of David, his genealogy, but that he actually comes from the, the village of Bethlehem. And this is incredible because by, by trying to deny Jesus, by trying to defy him, by trying to insult him, they're only affirming him. They're saying there's no way that this guy could be the Christ because he didn't come from Bethlehem. The Christ comes from Bethlehem, which means that they don't know where he's from, verse 27, but they're affirming that Christ comes from Bethlehem, which is where Jesus was from. I think that is awesome. I think that that is hilarious. They have no idea where Jesus is from. Verse 27. But he's going to come from Bethlehem when the Christ appears. Thanks, guys. You, you did that for us. It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 18, verse 7. It says, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. <laughs> These guys. So there is a division among the people over him. And here's another word for us. This is, this is kind of encouraging that there was a division among the people because it means that the people in verse 40 who looked at Jesus and said, this really is the Christ. Alethos, they genuinely, they truly, they most certainly believed this is the prophet, this is the Christ. They're standing their ground. There's a group of people there that want to kill Jesus. There's a group that want to arrest him. There's a group that just don't like him and want him to at the very least just go away and then there's a group that's like, no, this is the Christ. And they're letting that division stand. They're letting that stay. And you know, there's a question. When it comes, when it comes to us and to people that are aggressive against the gospel or aggressive against Jesus, they don't like Jesus, what do we do? We have this, you know, we have this, this tendency as Christians to, to think that division is synonymous with vitriol and anger and hatred and I have, to, I have to cut you down, I have to cancel you, I'm going to find your YouTube channel and I'm going to take it off the internet. But that's not necessarily so. We, we, are to be, we are to be, forgive 70 times 7, we are to be gentle, we are to be kind, we are to be empathetic, we are to go down into the dirt and pull those up that are there, even when they throw rocks at us. And it's okay for there to be division. There's going to be division. People are going to look at us and they're going to hate us. People are going to look at Christians and they're going to call us names. They're going to attack us. They're going to call us stupid. And we respond with gentleness and grace. It is one of the biggest challenges of being a Christian personally. Especially if somebody starts bad-mouthing my wife. I go for the throat punch. I have to like, really, that's a confession. I haven't actually done that yet. Not, well, not in 10 years. But... I struggle with that. I struggle with that. I, I want to repay animosity with animosity. I want to repay evil with evil. That's what my flesh wants to do. I got battery acid in my veins and I just want to lash out at people. We cannot do that, friends. Jesus never does that. There's a division and the division can lie. But we don't need to aggravate it. But if it happens, it's okay. Don't be ashamed of Jesus so that the, so that the division between you and your coworkers or you and your, your poker buddies or whoever it is, the, don't, 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 don't deny Jesus so that the division goes away. Your allegiance is to Jesus no matter what division occurs. 
here on earth. It's hard. And that's why we need to hear this. It's hard. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We cannot be ashamed of Jesus. We have to let the division stand. If it causes rift between family and friends, and it has caused rift between some of my friends and me, they don't, they're not really nasty about it, but they stopped calling. When I became a Christian and started coming to Door Hope 11 years ago, they, they stopped calling. They don't want to know. This place was filled with people like that, my dad's memorial service. They're like, yeah, you'd, you know, I got up here and preached the gospel, and they didn't like it. <laughs> Somebody actually got up and left, <clears throat> one of my family members. That division's going to happen. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but, to a so- but bring a sword. Friends, it's hard. It's hard. And I'm on this point for a while because I know that this is really difficult. I know that there's pressure There's social pressure, there's peer pressure. Our allegiance is to Jesus. And we are to reflect Jesus to those that have have anger towards us or aggression towards us. That's the challenge. But we have to to see them as Jesus sees them, as as his children made in his image. So let let us pray that we become more and more that kind of people. There was a division in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. I love it. You know, these guys are sent to arrest Jesus and they're tough. Like these guys are sent to arrest people. They're tough. They're, th- these, are, these are brawlers. These are, these are authoritarian. These, these men are like men of authority. They, they come with weapons and with armor and with shield to arrest people. And they, don't, they go back and they don't say, they, they hear Jesus speak and they don't go back and, they, and say, no man raised the dead like this man. No man healed leprosy like this man or cast out devils like this man. They say no man spoke like this man. How wonderful is that? How beautiful is that? No one spoke like this man. Jesus spoke and it rendered these guys speechless. And Jesus spoke with so much authority that it actually overpowered the authority that these men were given orders with. These men were given orders with authority and Jesus' authority was greater. Just with the words that he spoke. This is our king. This is our Jesus. This, This guy who's ostensibly some backwater dude, uneducated, speaks with such authority that these rough professional bouncers are like, they don't even know what to do with it. They don't even know what to do with it, but they're just, they're rendered speechless and they can't, they can't go through with it. They cannot arrest him. And so, of course, the Pharisees say, have you also been deceived? Have the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Are you, are you stupid? That's what, are you stupid? Have you been deceived? Have any of the Pharisees believed in him? And isn't this just like today? You Christians... You uneducated, small mind, pea-brained losers. And then, they, and then they defer to the greats. You know, they defer to Jean-Paul Sartre, to Stephen Hawkins, to Albert Camus. They, they quote all these smart people. And, you know, maybe we should read those people and, and hear what they have to say. So that just for the sake of discussion. Friends, this is, I just, this, this happens. And the temptation for me is whenever I'm getting flack for being a Christian, which, I, I mean, in Portland, it's never that bad. It's, it's mostly just like... Uh, turn the shoulder, that guy's a loser. It's not that bad, but in, pla- in, p- in parts of the world, this is really, really bad. People die for this. 
And I think at the very least, we should at least think about that. Jesus is more real than our persecution. He's more real than our discomfort. He's better. We need to not be ashamed of him and hide our Christian necklace or our Bible tattoos. I have friends who got Bible verse tattoos and then they tattooed over them later in life. We can't do that, man. We can't be ashamed of Jesus so that we're at peace with the world. If the world hates you, hates me, Jesus said, it's going to hate you. They're going to call us names. They're going to quote the greats. Are we, we Pharisees? Did we believe? No. Are you deceived? Yes, you are. Let them say it. Jesus said, blessed are you whenever they speak all sorts of false things against you and revile you because of me. Falsely, they say, revile you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. Jesus is watching. He's paying attention to us. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You've been deceived. These people are deceived. And literally what this says is those that don't know the Bible can go to hell. That's what that means. The ESV cleaned it up because I guess the translators think that we're sensitive. But that's what that means. Have we believed in him? No. This crowd that has, that they don't know the law, they can be accursed. And Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does, not our, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Are you dumb too? Have you been, have you been drinking the fluoride in the water, bro? What's wrong with you? You're one of us, bro. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I love that they say that. John 15, 18. The world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. Division, division, division. Nicodemus sticks up for Jesus and they just immediately attack his intelligence. And notice, they, they don't disagree with him. Does our law not give a man a hearing before he's judged? Do we not hear what he has to say? And that's true. Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, Leviticus 19, all say don't be too quick to judge, don't be quick to, too quick to condemn, get witnesses, let the person speak. And these people know that, but they don't, they don't attack his argument. They attack him, ad hominem, oldest trick in the book, and the stinkiest, if I might add. It's just not a good way to conduct a good conversation. <laughs> Jesus is Lord and King. You're a loser. Yes, and Jesus is Lord and King. <laughs> what are you, dumb? You from Galilee? Yeah, actually. But Jesus is King. They attack him. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. False. I love that they said that because it's not true. 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that Jonah was from an area in Galilee. And the minor, the minor prophet Hosea was from an area of Galilee. Who's really the dummy now, huh? But remember, friends, the division is real. And that's okay. Jesus promises us that it's going to happen. Jesus looked at these people. These people were in the crowd at the feast. Some of them wanted him dead. Some of them wanted him arrested. They at least wanted him gone. And he looked at those people. And he said, if any one of you is thirsty, come and drink. 
Because Jesus' grace and his patience and his mercy are so far beyond ours. And we have nothing to do but to shut up and learn from him. And then, to, and then to take that to the world. Go home and read your Bibles and fall in love with Jesus. So that when you go out there and you get this, are you stupid? Are you dumb? Have you read Albert Camus? Have you read Stephen Hawking? Have you read Christopher Hitchens? What's wrong with you? Are you unlearned? Are you uneducated? When you come against that, you will respond like Christ. But we need, we need to be with Christ. Because this is how good he is. And we are no better. We are just as fallen and sinful and broken. And we have just as many stains on our shirts. What does Josh say? We're, we're beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. That's it. Jesus loves these people. They're created in his image. He looks into the crowd, this ambivalent crowd. Some love him, some hate him. And he says, you who love me, come and take a drink if you're thirsty. You who hate me. When he was being nailed to the cross, actual, the actual metal going into his flesh, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So great is his love. So great is his mercy and his grace. So great is the gospel. Amen? Jesus is good. Jesus is good. Let me close in a quick word of prayer as we, as we finalize. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you that you show us so many examples of just real life circumstance where people, people are full of acceptance and of thirst and they come to you and they're overjoyed and they're, and they're full of gratitude. And, and then people who are just angry and aggressive and combative. Lord, help us to be Christians in the midst of all of that. Help us to be a people who reflect you. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you for saving us. I pray for anyone here who is looking at the cross and not sure what to do about it. Or if they're looking at the cross and they're angry. Lord, by your spirit, move in their hearts. Bring them to repentance. Bring them to salvation. And I pray, Lord, that those people might come to a staff member, to an elder, to someone else in the body. And that conversation can be had. Lord, help us to guide and direct those who you bring to us. Help us to preach to those that you bring to us. Help us to go forth and just proclaim the gospel. Help us to live it out with our lives. Help us to proclaim it with our lips. Thank you, Jesus, for everything. Thank you, Jesus, for everything. Thank you for loving us when we were angry and spiteful and confused and bitter and arrogant and all the rest. Your graces are new every morning. Thank you, Jesus Christ. Amen.